This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. Over at Microsoft, we've had, we're having quite the AI year, as you might have noticed. And um, we, uh, we've uh, worked very closely with an organization called OpenAI in the city. Anybody here from OpenAI today? Anybody come over the bridge? Uh, anyway, um, we put out this, as you know, something called ChatGPT. I guess it's not getting close to a year ago, and it just really took off. And um, it was a fascinating moment. It was not the most powerful um, AI chat thing that we had released, but it was released with a UI that people responded to. So it was more of a user experience difference. And all of a sudden, I'd be at parties and people would say, oh, we had ChatGPT write our wedding vows. I'm like, really? That's what you're doing? Seriously? Or things like that. And it kind of blew my mind. All right. So I have been around this AI thing for quite a while. I don't like the term AI. I don't like to use it, but I know it's the standard usage. So I shouldn't be so much of a jerk as to not use the same language as everybody else, but it still bugs me. I came by my dislike of the term honestly a long time ago. And so I'm going to tell you about my most important mentor when I was just a kid in computer science, because that's where it starts for me. And his name was Marvin Minsky. Uh, who has heard of Marvin Minsky, who's a younger person who's like a student? <laughs> okay. All right. Get with it. Learn history. It's important. Um, Marvin is one of the foundational computer scientists. And uh, if you've ever had to study this hierarchy of, comp of models of computation, like, you know, the finite state automata and the Turing machine and this notion of the generality of the Turing machine, Marvin was probably the main contributor to that hierarchy. He developed many, many fundamental concepts. And Back in the 50s, he and a cohort of others, uh, a few of whom are still around, um, had a conference at Dartmouth, 57 or 58 or something, where they came up with the term artificial intelligence. Uh, according to what I've heard from people who were there, but I was not, I was not born yet, uh, so I did not know this for sure, the, the whole idea of artificial intelligence and their way of talking about it was in part... Um, a political response to an opposing group that was read by, led by a guy named Norbert Wiener. Anybody remember Norbert Wiener? So, yeah, but you're all old enough to have done it. Students, students. All right, Norbert Wiener wrote a very famous series of books, one of which was called Cybernetics um, in the post-war period, and, and especially in the 50s. He was a wonderful mathematician and philosopher, and... His idea was that instead of thinking of computers as being like a Turing machine, where you have a device that reads a tape, you should think of them as a network of thermometers. It's a set of feedback devices that become ever more complicated. And instead of just running and then either halting or not, remember the halting problem from your classes, right? Um, uh, they would just be in continuous interaction with the world and might be almost understood as creatures. However, he felt that if we thought of them as creatures instead of tools, there would be political negative ramifications. 
which is quite interesting. Uh, he wrote a book called The Human Use of Human Beings. And what he thought was that if you personify the machines of this kind too much, you might end up with some people exploiting other people. And at the end of The Human Use of, hum of Human Beings is a thought experiment. And the thought experiment proposes, what if someday there could be a small device that was connected by radio signals to a big cybernetic device, which these days we might call a large model or a neural, net neural network or something, and what if, what if, what if that device had information about you and was following you and entered into a feedback loop that might manipulate you for the benefit of whoever owns the central device? That would be the end of civilization. It would just make us insane. Fortunately, as a renowned scientist, I can tell you this is impossible. It's only a thought experiment. <laughs> That's what it says. <laughs> okay. Obviously, we built that thing. Okay. So now... Um, what I've heard from people, and I just don't know if this is true. I, I, never met, I, um, I never met him. I like his ideas. His writing is not designed to be accessible. He's obviously got a bit of a snobbish thing going on. You need, there's equations in it. It's not, that, it's not like popular writing. Apparently, he was kind of a jerk and turned people off and made enemies. So it is said. I'm not sure. At any rate... This other group of people, including Marvin and some other folks, promoted this other notion of artificial intelligence directly in opposition to Wiener. Whatever he liked, they didn't like. Marvin and a colleague of his absolutely destroyed research on, on uh, neural nets and similar things for decades um, with the proof that they couldn't be absolutely, absolutely perfect, which is like, who needs perfection? But at any rate, that turned this whole field off for decades and decades and they were just really not into it. Um, Marvin had a gigantic influence on the culture. He used to hang out with the Golden Age science fiction writers, so he influenced Isaac Asimov to create the laws of robotics in some of his novels, and also Arthur C. Clarke to create the HAL computer in 2001. And in both cases, the idea is that the computer comes alive. It's like a creature instead of a tool, exactly the opposite of what Norbert Wiener would have wanted. But you keep the creature from getting out of control by giving it rules to live by. And the rules are like, you know, don't kill people. All right. And then in science fiction stories, it always turns out that those rules aren't reliable because <laughs> otherwise there wouldn't be a story. Um, except for Commander Data. They work for Commander Data. But that's the only example. Everywhere else, the Matrix movies, Terminator, they always fail. Okay, so the way they fail is very ancient. There are ancient, ancient stories about the impossibility of coming up with perfect laws to protect people. And they're usually in the form of genies in lamps. You, get, you find this lamp, you rub it, this genie comes out, and the genie says, I will grant you wishes. And then you try to be very clever and come up with wishes that the genie will twist into horrible things for you. It never works, because there wouldn't be a story if it worked. All right, so fast forward. It turns out Marvin and the others were wrong about neural networks. They actually function. They function at great scale. So we've entered into this curious time where the difference between usable performance and sort of okay, cute performance involves tremendously expensive preparation of models that not a lot of entities can afford to do. So when you look at the difference, if I may say our stuff or a few other places in the world, we're able to get to a level that 
maybe some others don't in terms of reliability and consistency and usability. I'd love to say that we have brilliant insights in our code. Of course we do. However, you don't get to see it, so what's the use of that? Uh, what we definitely have is larger scale preparation. We definitely have bigger training. And we definitely have more extensive training passes. And it's like, it's just this fantastic scale. So scale turns into quality. Will it remain so? No one knows. No one knows where the top of the S curve is. Obviously, you can't keep on getting more quality from scale indefinitely. So we don't know. Uh, so what that's done is it's created the scenario that Norbert Wiener warned against where uh, a small number of entities control the most functional central devices as he imagined them, which in our case are these city-sized servers that respond to your queries so that you can get your wedding vows written. Now, uh, back when I was... A teenager, I wasn't ever Marvin Minsky's student, but I got hired as a researcher working for him. And I'd been in college young, and he hired me very generously. And I worked for him and a guy named Alan Kay at MIT. Uh, Alan was very much on the other side of the fence, or is, Alan's with us, and uh, Alan was very much on the, the same side of the fence that I would occupy with Norbert Wiener and many others, including Vannevar Bush and Ted Nelson and Ada Lovelace and other figures you should know about. Um, and I used to argue with Marvin all the time. Marvin always said I was the only protege of his who just gave him hell constantly. <laughs> and he liked it to his credit. When he was dying and I saw him for the last time in, in, at his house in Brookline, Massachusetts, I was on the way and a mutual friend called me and said, you know, Marvin's very frail. Don't have the argument with him. Like, like, just don't like, just let it go. Let it go. AI is fine. And <laughs> I showed up at his house and he looks at me with this glee says, are you ready to argue? <laughs> it was great. So we had the argument and the way the argument went is I said, you know, this whole thing is subject to a, a figure ground inversion, meaning you can look at it in a different way. You can flip the, the sign on it and still have a completely functional and equivalent way of thinking about it from a technical point of view. But this inversion might actually be better from a societal and a practical engineering point of view. And so the way you flip the bit on this, uh, I used to call it the life of the parody, which is a bad pun which two, pe two, pe two people laughed at. I feel very old somehow. I like, <laughs> come on, people. That was funny. Anyway, um, <laughs> the life of the parody. Anyway, the parody bit goes like this. If you set the bit one way, you think of the AI as like this creature, and you, you refer to it as this thing that is an entity that does things that is like another person or maybe some a pseudo person who's in the room and you talk to it and you ask it to do things. And that is the most common way of thinking about it. it in fact, it's uh, overwhelmingly the most common way to think about it. In, I mean, we have a chat interface as if you're chatting with a person. Why would you have that if you didn't think of it that way? There's another way to think about it, which is that it's a form of social collaboration. 
So it's closer to something like the Wikipedia, maybe, where you have a whole bunch of people who provided example data, training data, and then what this thing has the ability to do is mash it up in new ways. But it still is a collaboration of people. And if you analyze it on those terms, you have a more actionable way of understanding it. And if you integrate it into society in those terms, you have a brighter and more actionable set of paths open for the future of society. From a purely technical point of view, they, th it doesn't matter. It's just how you think about this thing. It doesn't change the thing necessarily, but in these other ways, it does matter. So let me go over a couple of the ways that I think it matters. Now, <clears throat> um, let me start with the question of explanation. So one of the frequent topics in the study of large model generative AI is why the hell did it do that thing it just did? <laughs> okay, so for instance, uh, a very famous example is a New York Times reporter who lives in town here uh, talked to our chat GPT not too long after it became famous and it started to say, I love you. You should leave your wife because I love you. And, and it's like really weird. And so the question is, why did our chatbot do that? Okay, now, the, the contingent answer is that if you go too many cycles on a chatbot, they can go off the rails because they start to rely too much on the memory of the interaction cycle, which is actually not that uh, reliable a way to guide them. And so one of the things we've done is we've uh, limited the number of cycles that you can, you can interact with the bot. That actually helps a lot. Great. We've also tried to do a lot of improvement on watching if it goes wrong, which is the genie approach. Like the chat, the chatbot should not declare love for the user. <laughs> you know, like that's really not great. All right. So, and those things sort of work, but you run into the genie problem where the restrictions aren't totally reliable. Okay. So what's another way to do it? Well, if you use this other inversion, this parity bit flip, as I mentioned, which I which we call data dignity is our term for it. Um, if we do that, then you ask a different question. You say, hey, which were the important source examples that fed into this particular output from the model? Very concrete thing. If you say, don't profess love, that's hard to judge. That's actually not that concrete. If you say, what were the sources? That is. Now, you might think to yourself, wait a second, these large models are called large for a good reason. Aren't there millions of ante billions of antecedent examples that fed into it? Isn't that why it can even talk? It has grammar and all that. And the answer is sure. However, in a particular output, there's going to be a power law or a Pareto principle in which there'll be a peak of certain special inputs that'll matter to that particular output. And then the question is, how many examples, how many input documents matter to that particular output above a threshold that you set? All right. Now, if you think the question that way, you end up with a much smaller number. And you have to do it with a little more sophistication because on the one hand, you want to have the examples that are, are the most influential, which involves estimating counterfactuals. How different would the output be without this thing? But then you also 
worry about how replaceable it is. Like, is this thing really the equivalent of a million other things? And this was just chosen at random and it didn't bring anything special. So, you know, actually defining this is a bit more subtle than it might appear, but it remains concrete. It doesn't become some weird subjective approximate thing described by natural language only. And now you can say in that example, as it happens, what did that? Well, it was a bunch of fan fiction and soap opera transcripts. All right. So what you could do is if the bot gives you something weird, you could say, hey, bot, why so weird? And it would say, oh, this is fan fiction and soap operas. Don't you like it? Say, like, no, 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 leave that stuff out. This is supposed to be a fake essay for my seminar. And, uh, and, and the bot will say, okay, got rid of that. How's this? And then, so you can start to prune it by inputs. And if you prune by inputs, you have, I'm not suggesting that it's the universal solution or the only solution, but it's the most concretely defined solution. So I like it. We don't do that currently because to do it efficiently, if you, if you have all the, if you have all the money in the world when, you know, we're Microsoft, if you, we can, we can conduct expensive research to, to run something routinely, you need efficiency. And to do this efficiently, you have to do some different work in the training phase. And this is, I'm advocating that we shift to that. If I was the dictator of all computer science, we would have already. Instead, I'm here advocating and I am attempting, I'm attempting to move to a world in which we do that. So, um, let us suppose that I have made at least a passable argument that tracking, and here's another keyword, the provenance of sources relevant to a given large model output. If that's an effective way of improving the explanation for model outputs and for improving the quality of model outputs and for addressing security issues with model outputs and a whole bunch of, like a lot of the issues we have that we're concerned about can be at least improved this way. I'm not suggesting it's exclusive, but I think it's important. I mentioned there's another reason to care about this approach, which is the larger societal frame. And here I want to suggest a few ways that I think this could matter. I'm going to start with a concrete one. It, in a way, it's the most controversial and the hardest to argue for because it requires empirical study that is barely done at all. So I might be wrong. I don't know. But give this a try. Uh, I think it's at least worth, worth experimenting with. Right now, there's great uncertainty and anxiety about human role displacement because of large models. Now, there's a lot of controversy and a lot of different opinions about this. There are those who believe that most paid work is just going to go away and we'll all survive off of universal basic income. And my good buddy, Sam Altman, who runs OpenAI, is starting to do a crypto thing with like these weird balls that measure your eyeball so that you'll be able to sign up for your universal basic income payments. I don't like that scenario. I like Sam. I'm not into that scenario. There's several reasons I don't like it. One reason is that although we don't have this precise experiment under our belt as humanity, we have some that overlap with it. And what I believe we see from a lot of social and economic experiments is that if you channel the support for everybody in a society through a single organization, 
that organization will be seized by the worst people. <laughs> and societies do better when there's a bit more of a mashup, a mix-up of a lot of different institutions and different organizing principles so that there isn't any single central thing to seize. So the way I have put it with students is you start with Bolsheviks and you end up with Stalinists, right? And uh, uh, now that's not to say, that's not arguing against any universal basic income, if it's, but it's, it's uh, arguing against making it the principal organizing principle for society. Um, and so that political problem for me is, is a, a serious one. And I can't find counterexamples. I can find lots of examples of modest universal applications of a strong social safety net, the, the Scandinavian model, but not as big as would be required if this vision were to be fulfilled. Those all seem to go bad. And I'm saying this in Berkeley, so <laughs> go easy on me. <laughs> um, Okay, so, uh, but there's another issue which I would define as a spiritual issue, which is, I think it's hard to separate human identity from human activity. Like, we're not just nouns, we're verbs, we do things. And if what we do is not valued, is not economically important in the event we live in a market society to any degree at all, um, there's a problem. And uh, I, uh, I think this is really serious. I mean, what I observe in the world might be different from what others do, but what I observe is that in recent decades, as tech has become more and more of the guiding principle of our civilization and the thing that gets the most attention and the most discussion, we tend to have a lot of the sort of hard AI viewpoint discussed that um, machines are people too and people will become um, somewhat subordinate and either will live lives of ease or will be eaten and destroyed by our machines, one or the other, but probably lives of ease. That's like a very common thing that you hear. How does that sound to people who are removed from the center of power? I mean, when we're here in the Bay Area, we all know we're either doing this stuff or we immediately know the people who are. It's not some mysterious remote thing to us. So we don't feel like it's some alien force from over the horizon, but everywhere else in the world, that's how it feels. And what I note is that everywhere in the world, there's been a rise of a certain kind of feeling, which is hardly new, has been with us from the dawn of civilization, but not so much as just recently in recent generations, which is this kind of like, I am defined by my human identity, and my human identity is the important thing, and everything else is garbage. And you find that in, in I think it's to an extreme. And so I think, uh, and I, like, so I'm going to just play both sides here because I really do think it's a universal phenomenon. In the American right, you see this rhetoric of, um, we need to go back to pure biology. We can't allow abortions anymore because we must be, you know, we're not just abstract beings. We're sacred and, and whatever. And uh, and of course we are sacred, but does it have to be expressed that way um, as some one person's power over another? Well, for some, yes. We have to uh, sent, We have to double down on our ethnic identity, even if it's sort of made up, whatever, we have to do that. Same thing's true on the left. We've had a kind of obsession with identity um, 
that in maybe gets a little overboard once in a while. I, I have to say, um, once again, be, be nice to me. I know it's Berkeley. Um, and, but the thing is, it's all over the place. In other parts of the world, you see, it's not just there have been religious extremists, but there's a kind of, I would say, retreat into um, almost uh, magical identity, bio-religious identity, like all over the world. It's, it's, it's really crazy. So I, I don't know how far to develop this thesis exactly, because all of these things are very approximate and dissipate if you try to make a, make them too perfect as expressions. But I do think there's something going on. I think we're creating, we being the tech universe, I think we're creating a future that repels most people, makes them feel un, unloved and unneeded and left behind. Um, and we say it all the time. I mean, if you look, if you look at our rhetoric, as it must read to the outside, it's appalling, you know? And anyway, the thing is, if we reformulate AI, it doesn't, like I say, it's technically equivalent. If we call it a social collaboration instead of this new creature on the scene, that problem goes away. We just got rid of that problem. If we say, you know what? This thing is not some new entity that's writing your... It's not some alien intelligence that's writing your college essay for you. What you just did is you mashed up these specific 20 people. Here they are. They're not just hypothetical. They're real, real people. That's kind of cool. So it completely human centers the whole enterprise. But there's more. (laughs) Um, One of the things I'm interested in is applications... So by the way, I love this stuff. I love if I, I think of it as a social mashup technology, but I think it's great. I can give you a bunch of examples where I'm really using it all the time. One is I um, the groups I work with do a lot of math, and one of the problems we have in math is that there there are a very small number of Greek letters, and there's a very small number of favored terms like you know meta and cover and whatever. And you might think that these things are all formally defined, but we have so many concepts that we need to apply things to that we end up using them over and over again. And what that means is you can't search the literature anymore. And so uh, we have this problem in math that it's kind of an oral tradition still. We have to call people say, hey, have you ever heard anybody doing this? To say, well, they might have called it this other thing. Using the large models, I can skip over the keywords and find things that we wouldn't have found before. And it's been transformative because it reveals a story of math that was actually hidden from us before. I really like, that's a big deal. It sounds a little maybe less romantic than some of the others, like wedding vows or whatever, but I think it's really great. <laughs> and, and, and that's the magic we can do. when we, um, If you have one pile of examples of pictures of cats and another pile of examples of people in hot air balloons and you ask for a cat in a hot air balloon, it has to meet both constraints, both classifiers requirements at the same time. And in order to do that, there's an intrinsic sort of bounded problem solving within those two piles of examples. It's important to understand it doesn't go beyond that. It's not arbitrarily creative, but it is kind of creative in joining those two piles of examples. That's what we can do. And that's great. That's a fantastic capability. So I I actually am very pro doing it. If I didn't, I wouldn't be spending all day trying to get this stuff to happen for this this big company. But um, um, what we can do if we reveal the people whose examples were important 
is we can motivate filling in types of training data that are sparse. So an example, um, there's lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of examples of websites on GitHub. If you go to Copilot and you say, I'd like a website, no problem. It'll make you a website. And if you say, oh, could you change this part to Python? No problem. It'll do that. And part of the reason that all works so weirdly well is that the amount of example data is really vast because there's just a big community that's been doing it for a long time. If you say, hey, I'd like a virtual world with avatars that look like cephalopods and whatever, eh, it starts, because there's really not that much antecedent data for it to draw on. We didn't have data to train it. It just is there. There's like a little itsy bit, not a lot. So how do you, what do you do about that? Well, it's a very interesting research topic, and there are some things you can do. Um, for the moment, we do it with multimodal approaches where, for instance, we might render into a domain where we do have training data, like in 2D, and then use that iteratively to improve rendering into one where we don't, in 3D, etc. There's lots of interesting techniques. That's a lot of the current research. But wouldn't it be cool to say, there's a commercial opportunity, add great data of this kind to the big model. You can make some money, you can earn some glory, some recognition, people will know you did it. Like, why not? What is wrong with that? Why not motivate people to add great data to a tool that'll then help other people? That would be good. Right now, we don't have any way to do that because everything is supposed to be lost in the great sea and you're supposed to subsume your identity to the great creature in the sky. But why? There's no reason. It doesn't actually accomplish anything. It's just, I think a lot of what it is, is when people grow up on certain science fiction, it becomes their vocabulary. It's almost like when you grow up with religious stories. And so just again and again, I have to create Skynet. Even if Skynet's really bad, I still have to create it. Or I have to create those agents in the Matrix movies, or whatever it is. I have to make my commander data, who's the nicest one, the only nice one, really. Um, and uh, I have to do it. That's, what I, that's the vocabulary I know. But why? It doesn't actually make rational sense. There's no reason to think of it that way. Um, then there's this other interesting question, which is the future of the economy. So most people who study how this might play out economically will say, it's not black and white. It's not so much that the whole of the population will be unemployed and everything will be AI systems and robots. Well, some people do believe that pretty strongly. And there's others who say, oh, no, no, no. It's just like in the past, new technology creates new jobs. This isn't that different. Probably there's some, a lot of truth in that too. But anyway, we don't know for sure. Um, it's all speculation until we get a few more decades into this thing, right? <laughs> and uh, let's say that there's some group of people who might experience some loss of well-being or prestige or something because of AI systems. What if instead they could become celebrated contributors to AI systems in the way I just described? And maybe, and here, don't gasp, earn money. Like, why not? Like, the amount of money that flows through central internet hubs now is, like, spectacular. Um, we're, I, don't, I haven't checked the stock today, but we're worth two point something trillion dollars. I mean, come on, trillion, trillion. It's this gigantic hub of the economy, just as Norbert Wiener had predicted it would be. 
we can create an economy where more people participate in that. It's not charity of us to them. It's growing the economy by keeping more value on the books instead of throwing it off the books. So if you believe in market economies at all, they don't have to be the only thing going on, but if they have any role at all, then having more value on the books grows the economy and is better for everybody. And we can do that with the state of dignity approach. It doesn't mean that it's universal for every situation, for everyone always, but why not create a new creative class instead of a new dependent class whenever that's possible? All right, that would be the vision. You want to create creative classes instead of dependent classes. And this issue of the creative classes to me has a sort of a long-term, I would call it a spiritual dimension. If we imagine what is the future of a really advanced economy with advanced software, advanced robots, advanced materials, a better energy cycle instead of our sucky one, and things just get like, what is human life like? How do we think of ourselves? And the obvious answer to me is more people should define their lives as creative lives rather than lives driven by a narrow necessity of one sort or another. Isn't that obvious? Isn't that what we'd want? What is the other alternative? Like what, what, what other idea is better than that? Um, I've been criticized by saying, oh, well, you're an artist, so you want everybody to be an artist. But really, like what is the better idea? What is the better idea? What do we want from all this technology. Um, so I think there's a, there's a general direction in data dignity that offers us a human-centered future that just has more concrete terms for improving the performance of technology and more positive human roles in it. And just the whole thing makes more sense. The cost of it is a high cost, which is giving up the vocabulary of one's childhood, those science fiction movies of the big entities in the sky that we're supposed to be building. I don't know, you could still believe that in your heart. You know, I'm not, I'm not the thought police. <laughs> anyway, that's the very briefest summary of data dignity I know how to make. Um, of course, I could I can, and sometimes do go on for hours and hours and hours about this stuff. How's my time? Is this? That, that was amazing. Um, your time, you're, you're actually, uh, you know, I, I think the threat that I hug you stopped you. So I'm, I'm going to use that again in the future when, um, okay. All right. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, so uh, we're we're gathering um, some questions from the audience, and Meredith is busy trying to consolidate some of those questions. Uh, and uh, so, so here's here's a question that you're probably not surprised that you're getting. Okay. Um, uh, it's it's written in a kind of stark form. <laughs> Do you think the development of AI should stop and why or why not? <laughs> well, see, I don't think AI is a real thing. So, um, so that the famous petition for pausing AI for six months was written by a good buddy of mine. who's also a neighbor, um, uh, the physicist, Anthony Aguirre. And, um, uh, when I looked at it and a lot of people at Microsoft actually signed it, um, 
I just feel like the problem with it is that in the very formulation, it emphasizes this idea that AI is like this entity or like this thing. And I don't think it is. I don't think there's anything there to stop. I think the way we should think of it is to focus on the people and the social collaboration. Um, and if you think of it that way, it just becomes less intelligible to talk about stopping it. And I think it just makes it safer and better to think of it that way. So my problem with the the pause petition is it reinforces a way of thinking about AI that I think makes it harder to avoid troubles. Hey, here's another one. As AI becomes more powerful, how can we guarantee that it may decide, or whether or not it may decide to break the rules that it has been given? There is no AI. It's not an intelligible question. There's nothing there. If you insist on thinking that way, it will definitely break the rules because you can't write the rules. You can't trick the genie. So the way you've posed the question is the problem and guarantees failure. How's that? That's, that's an amazing answer to that question. And as a I mathematician, I love that answer. No, because it's a... Yes, because math, it's ill-posed. You have to have defined... You, right, you like, have to have well-posed questions. Yeah, you, and so, look, I, I don't... I'm a little concerned that I'm going to sound too postmodern or deconstructionist or something and like, oh, no, 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 what you're saying doesn't make sense. But in this case, really, really, the practical idea is to question your question. That is actually the far more practical approach. So what are the impediments to your approach being realized? Yeah. Um, a lot of it is, um, I had wanted us to try to do it, to do the recent uh, GPT-3 to 4 this way. However, the problem with it was that we didn't even know like if the code Copilot would work at all. Like, like this has all been so experimental, and the experiments have to happen at such large scales. And the trick, the tricky thing is that if you put too, too many research questions into a very large scale experiment, it's very hard to figure out what your how to interpret your result, right? So, like, if I'd gotten us to do it and then it worked, it would be hard to know. So, like, in other words, what you want to do is you want to put as little as possible into a large-scale experiment so that the results are more easily interpretable. Um, and that is the correct answer from a science point of view. However, from a society point of view, we did this stuff right in the middle of everybody's weddings, right? And so there's this, I, I don't know, you know, like, it, it's, um, I think the reasons for not having done it so far are reasonable and the difficulty with doing it now, just to be really blunt is it's hard to argue with success. We're crazy successful with this thing. It's making a lot of money and then it's hard to go. It is a commercial enterprise. So it's hard to go and say, well, let's just do it this other totally different way. <laughs> um, the other thing is that most people in the world do think in terms of AI being this creature, the way that I don't like to think of it. And it's very hard it's very hard to come up and say, oh, you're all thinking wrong. You're all doing it wrong. It's a hard position to be in. I'm trying to do it with good humor and as much clarity as I can muster. And I have faith in my fellow human beings that eventually this point of view will gain more traction. 
but also have to be realistic about how difficult it is. I got a couple more questions here. If ChatGPT could be considered a social collaboration, so in other words, your your inverted way of looking at it, how do we reckon with the fact that most of the training data is heavily white and male and Western? By making the training data explicated, you know, like I think, I think what should happen is when you get a result, you should be able to get a characterization of the key antecedent examples that influenced your result. And I think the problem with this idea that this it's this oracle, this mysterious, infinitely large oracle that's with a trackless interior that no one can interpret is that when you complain about bias, your only option is to try to slap another AI on the output to try to catch the bias, which gets you back into the genie problem. Now, um, we've been doing a little bit of that, and I think it works a little bit. I'm not saying that we should stop doing it. I just think, um, like, oh, God, I can give you so many examples of this. A long time ago in the 90s, I had a group that did the first um, uh, robust uh, facial feature tracking, right? And um, it was based at USC. And one day, we just discovered it didn't work on black people. It was like, oh, my God, that's, this is so horrible. But you realize that it was just trained on the people who happened to be in the room. And it was USC in the 90s. <laughs> there were not black people in the, in the engineering world at USC in the 90s. You know, it just wasn't happening. Um, and so there it was, reflected right back at us. And then so the approach that worked to fixing it is exactly what I've been talking about. Like the antecedent data has to reflect humanity and not be some sort of imagined, you know, whatever um, that you pretend not to know about. Um, so that I, I got introduced to that in the rudest, most, you know, difficult way. But the thing is, we're still doing the same thing. By If we pretend that the antecedent data is some trackless, impossible to know, gigantic mush and we can't even talk about it and all we can do is try to moderate it on the output it's a very we're putting ourselves in a needlessly difficult position you know why can't so why aren't why can't people be motivated to make the training data work data work better for society and to me this would be a sterling example of where it should so one more question what role does citizenship as a concept play in AI ethics? Um, this, this opens up a sort of a complicated topic. So in my view, earlier programs that are called AI have done horrific global damage to citizenship everywhere at once by um, detecting uh, rather crudely, uh, attention generating, uh, choices in, in constructing online experiences for people for the benefit of, uh, the reach of social media platforms and advertisers and whatever. And so we've ended up with the whole world kind of a little, I mean, everybody's always, hum humans have always been a little paranoid and cranky and whatever, 
we've always been this way, but we're just a little bit more this way. It just accentuates those parts of us and that directly undermines citizenship because people turn on each other. Um, like, I don't know, I don't know if the U S will be around in a couple of years. It's like, I've never felt that way before in my life. Uh, um, I, and it's, it's horrible and it's happening all over the place in, in, um, this is something I've written a lot about, and uh, when I started writing about it, nobody believed me, and now it's normal to worry about this. At any rate, um, what we're all terrified of now uh, in, in the industry and everywhere is that um, if the current generation of generative AI is used to make people insane, like for upcoming elections, we're really screwed. And the issue, oh God, let me just try to say a few more sentences about this. There's an illusion that has taken over the minds of the whole generation, like the whole technical world that is obviously a falsehood and yet we can't let go of it, which is that a naive form of democratization makes sense. And it obviously doesn't. And, and this is something we knew way back when I was, when the, when the internet didn't exist yet. And I was, um, I was working with a guy named Al Gore who had helped, um, get no Al Gore just just to I don't know if you're laughing because there's a there's a trope that he says he invented the internet which I don't think he did but the thing is he actually did because the internet is not a technical invention it's a political one and the invention was very simple uh, we're going to bribe all the people who are running packet switch networks so they'll stop being dicks and we'll interoperate and we'll use government money to bribe them that was the invention and it worked so I remember saying you know you realize because of how network effects work because of basic math there are going to be a few gigantic winners of people who are able to make hubs on this thing, which is very bare bones. And we'll need, we'll need to have these services that figure out where data came from. That's Google or who, who did it. That's Facebook or Meta and et cetera. And we're going to create these giant, giant hubs. And we don't, we're making a gift of trillions and trillions of dollars to parties unknown. And that's going to happen. And the answer was, yeah, but at least there'll be American companies. Okay. So now, the one that owns the minds of the youngest people is a Chinese company. It's TikTok. And I, uh, God, this is also very uncomfortable to talk about because I don't want to spawn some sort of uh, paranoia about Chaya, but I have another role kind of in the world that looks at these things uh, with DARPA. And I got to say, they're totally on top of using this thing if they need to. And there, there's a lot of horrific scenarios that could come about. And I'm worried. I'm really scared. Another thing is that we tech people make ourselves insane with their own inventions. Like, um, in my view, uh, Twitter or X made Elon Musk insane in a way that he didn't used to be insane. And I think it's, it's a very clear and obvious thing that's happened. And everyone who knows him has seen it happen and has seen how it happened. And it's, it just gets worse and worse. And, um, and uh, so, yeah, we have a big problem. This is, we're going to go through harrowing times in the next few years. And I kind of believe if we can make it through the next few years, then we can, we can make it through a long time after that, at least as far as these issues go. Then we still have the climate and everything. But um, I think we're about, we're going to go through a very difficult crunch here. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.